But read along with me, if you would, in verse 1. And it will be up on the screen behind me as well, so you will be able to see that. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That's as much as we covered last week. We pick it up in verse 6 tonight. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law, to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds, as of many, but as of one, as to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant which was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Pray with me if you would, please. Lord, we come before you tonight hungry, expectant, desirous. Lord, there is... Here in this room, spiritual appetites that need be met. And Lord, you've never been intimidated by our needs. You know the great and grievous things we ourselves would prefer to hide or not even face. You've taken all of our filth and our shame and our guilt and nailed it to the cross. 
And Lord, we confess to you that this is in essence a time in the woodshed for manipulating the simple truth of your word to the things that are so easy for men to grab a hold of. We recognize, Lord, that true works are an affront to faith and an insult to grace. So, Lord, we pray that you would lead us now. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit, Lord, that I would disappear and that you would be seen. I pray, Lord, that you would come upon me in a way, Lord, that you would use me to speak to every one of us, myself included. Lord, this is never to be in any way something for others to hear and not me. And so, Lord, I pray, as you knew exactly who you would bring in this room tonight, I pray tonight, Lord, that you would revolutionize every one of us. That you would so bespoke a word to each of us that we would hear exactly what it is you want to tell us. Just the way we need to hear it. And that tonight, here in this room, on this, the 1st of April, 215, that we would be transformed. So Lord, do your work now, we pray. Father, I just want to commit this night to you. And this precious flock you bled and died for. Redeem every second, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. That's how this works here. Is we always want to make sure that it's God's word we're standing on, not ours. Well, in our text here, for what it's worth... Paul is writing to a church he had founded, or at least what it seems to be the case. They were clearly welcoming him when he had come, and he had spent a great deal of time with them, planting the word of grace in their hearts. He knows what they were founded on. And here's the problem. As that the church is the church, it's a church in the middle of Turkey that didn't have, for the most part, a very Jewish background. It was just primarily a Gentile church. I understand God really just kind of put things, people into two categories. He put people into the Jewish people and everybody else. That didn't make us any less important. The idea was, these were the missionaries and this was the mission field. That was kind of the way God put it. And with that, he intended for the Jewish people to be a light to the rest of the world. And as he desired for that to be the case, the idea was simple. The law was a mirror, not a makeup artist. The law was the doctor who diagnoses, not the surgeon who performs surgery. But the problem is, is that the standard was always a standard of perfection for which people would say that's not fair. Well, it wouldn't be fair. It's better than fair. And that's why grace is so important. And the amazing thing is, no matter where you go on the planet, people are aware of the fact that they're just not right with God. Now, they may make up who their God is or their God system or whatever the case is, but there's no person on the planet that doesn't realize that there's something wrong with, that is something wrong with us. I mean, they all, we're all aware of it. Now, either we're going to make up our own rules to what or we're going to let God do that. But if I know that I'm not right with God and I desire to get right with God, then the wisest thing for me is to ask him what I need to do to get right. Because if I really seek to make up my rules myself, I'm really not submitting to the God that I think I've offended. 
But they're so natural for us to take matters into our own hands. And what Paul has done is he's gone and he's laid this foundation of a church where it's like, listen, God wants to give you a gift. Now, the one part that you're responsible for is the trust to receive that gift. That's it. The gift is, and you can't call it cheap. You can't go, oh, well, this really comes at no expense. This comes at the expense of God's only begotten son who died on a cross for us. There's nothing cheap about that. But my God is so in love with you that his own son would bleed and die on a cross because he wanted your sins, your filth and my filth, and your guilt and my guilt punished. And then he just says, I want to give you this gift. Because why would you want to pay a bill that's already been paid? And God has paid your bill. God as a righteous judge is going to punish all wrongdoing. He saw your wrongdoing and my wrongdoing and laid it all upon the volunteer of his son who is the only one qualified because he was the only one without sin to pay for himself. That's why I can't pay for yours. I've got my own to deal with. But my God in his perfect love sent Jesus. And then the whole thing is a gift. The problem is not getting our head wrapped around that. The problem is getting our heart wrapped around that. I get the idea that someone wants to give me a gift. Now, let's face it, here people are always handing you things, and you're probably aware of the fact that anytime someone hands you something, there's usually something attached to it. You know, it's, I mean, you can walk down by Covent Garden and someone wants to hand you soap. Uh, the first time it actually smells a little like candy, but don't put it in your mouth. Trust me, it's not a good idea. And then someone says, well, here, here's this, and there's this voucher, and there's this gift, and there's this thing. And you kind of always, we get to the point where we're kind of like, hey, 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 hey. Let's just be honest here. Just lay it out and be honest with me. What are you asking for? But imagine if they said, your love. We would giggle and walk off and think that person's a lunatic. Because real love is going to be demonstrated in sacrifice. And there's no greater sacrifice than out of giving up your own life. It's God's way of saying, I'd rather die than live without you. And here comes the problem now. Throughout time, we want to somehow feel like, even though we've received the gift, we feel emotionally inclined to try to pay it back. And that's where the problem is. So imagine, if you will, that Mario hits it rich. I mean, just, I don't know what happens. He just kicks a bag of money in the front of his house, and there's billions of pounds there. Rena just goes ballistic. She starts thinking, what do we want to do with this? Are we going to take a trip? Are we going to buy a house or whatever? And Mario, filled with benevolence and kindness, starts going out, and he just wants to go and buy things. And he turns to Jordan, and he says, Jordan, wouldn't you just love a house? I want to give you a house, and I'm going to give you a house in Chelsea. And he goes and he scouts out this place. One of those places where everybody, it's like not enough to have a house. You have to have the, like, you know, the scaffolding in front of it because you're only good if you're constantly redoing it because that says that you not only spent a lot of money on the house, but you're still spending money on the house. And he says, you know, Jordan, I just, out of love for you, out of kindness for you, I want to do this. And of course, Jordan's a little cautious. He doesn't know Mario very well. And he goes, all right, I don't know. I mean, we may have prayed and that's about it. But somewhere down the line, he goes, okay, okay, well, I'd kind of be dumb not to. And he takes this 34 million pound house somewhere in Chelsea. Now, meanwhile, while all that's happening, let's just say that, that Jordan gets a job at the, uh, at the van store in Camden. Now, you might guess the fact that a uh, van store, with all due respect, he's probably not making a mint. And he says, you know, really, after sort of rent and food or whatever and trying to keep up the place, I really can only afford to give you like five pounds. Uh, oh, can I, this is all I can really afford. Here's five pounds. 
are we even? Would that not insult Mario on a handful of levels? Because on the first level, first of all, there's no way that the five pounds that he offers him could possibly compare to the house he's given him. On the second side of it, it also insults his kindness because the idea is I wanted to give this to you out of kindness. And that's exactly what the church does. What the church does is that God says, I'm giving you my bloody son who died for your sins. And you're like, well, let me pay you back. I'm going to do some nice things. And God's like, excuse me, you're dishing off pocket change for the amazing gift of my son. Does that really account in your world? Because it doesn't in mine. And Paul looks at this church and he goes, what are you on, some kind of spell? What happened to you guys? I mean, you guys were all about, you know, and you know it because when it's all about grace and the kindness and the love of God, see, when you don't earn it, you don't have to fight to keep it. The moment I have to fight to win it, I have to fight to keep it. But if it's given to me when I have nothing to offer but surrender, I kind of feel like I can't blow it. And Paul looks at this church and he's like, what happened to you guys? I remember when it was that it was all about, it was our hands were raised in surrender and we were so excited about Jesus. The reason we were so excited about Jesus is because we knew we had no part in it. It was never anything we deserved or it couldn't be grace. We were kind of mind blown. We looked and went, I don't get it. And then somehow our songs start changing to, I just want to see what you saw in me. God's like, you do not want to see what I saw in you. And you're like, well, that's bad for my self-esteem. Funny, a moment of you had God-esteem. Somehow the spotlight got on you now. And when it got on to me, I'm like, oh, man, I feel like I owe. But that, what that does is, first of all, that doesn't, we don't believe that God paid the whole thing. The Catholic Church has done that, and I don't want to pick on that. I want to be, I'm going to be general, but I have to be honest. The Pope had decreed, John Paul II, he decreed, that up to the point of your salvation, Christ paid for those sins. But after that point, you've got to work it off with the church. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, really? And the moment it's Jesus plus, you got problems. Because if we sing, Jesus paid it all until I got saved, and now i got to work off the rest of it. Really? How does that work? The best thing you can do is get saved right before you die. I mean, if really the only sins he paid for were the ones right, you know, until you got saved, I'd say, save me and then kill me. So we make sure that that's cleared. And Paul looks and he goes, what happened to you guys? And he goes, here's some questions. And this is a recap. And we get into our text, which in essence, in the simplest sense, is the fact that this has always been God's plan. That's the point here. So please hear me in this. He says, he goes, can I just ask you a couple questions? Because what happens is, you may be feeling emotionally inclined to it, but does it make any sense to you? When you receive the Spirit, did you earn it, or was it given? Now, the idea of receiving the Spirit according to Scripture, Ephesians 1 tells us that the moment we believed on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the moment we did, we received the Spirit of God. And in all of the cases, here's the simplest way to put it. Who is the one who starts the motion and who is the one who responds? The moment God becomes the responder, we flipped it upside down. And we can still do that in church. And that's the danger. God chased after me when I was dead in my trespasses and sin. God died for me when I was filthy, a sinner, and an enemy in my heart to him. Now, how does a dead person start a relationship? He could start a relationship with worms. 
It can start a relationship with decay, but not with the living. And understand, here's the idea. Who was the one who initiated and who was the one who responded in regards to you getting saved? God initiated. He chased after you. And if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and this stuff is kind of punching you in the head, let me just say, God knew you were coming tonight to hear this. God chased after you, and he said, will you respond now and receive my gift? And then he said, after that, he goes, that's how it starts. It starts with him initiating and you responding. And then he says, having begun in the spirit, are you now trying to be made perfect in the flesh? He goes, now that you are saved. Now understand, there's where it starts. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? If not, you're still on this side, but you have that choice to make. He's made the motion. You have the opportunity to respond. Once you say yes to Jesus, now it's like, now how do we go from here to the next step, which is looking more like Jesus? Is that what you do, or is that what God does? When you say, but isn't there a part of it for me? I mean, isn't there a part in regards to reading and praying and being in church? Please hear me. In every case, someone initiates and someone responds. And here's the danger of reading the Word. Especially, I'm like, listen, pray for my children. And I don't mean that to be mean. They grew up in a home where it's like the standards reading the Bible, the standards praying. But understand, in every bit of that, we can do all of those things as if we're trying to sort of rev up God instead of respond to Him. I don't read because I'm going, if I read, God will respond. I am reading in response to God's call to intimacy in my life. He's going, you know what? I want you to know me better. And, I, and I'm like, I wish I could read your mind. God says, you can. It's right here. Oh, wow. I guess that is you. I don't pray because I don't... I, 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 let me just really deal with this. Again, don't just believe me on anything. Search the scriptures. I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of the one we pray to. Because if the power is in prayer, you can pray to the wall. Power is not in the prayer. The power is in the one. Listen, he's already calling out to me. When, I, when Peter steps out on the water, he doesn't step on the water and say, Lord, catch me. He says, command me. The Lord commanded him. He responded. Prayer is literally prosukamai. Throwing yourself towards God's goodwill. There's the point. His goodwill is already there. I'm responding to it. If I pray for purpose of trying to get God to move, instead of in response to God's call in my life, I'm flipping this whole thing right upside down. Going to church. Am I going to church because I think if I go to church, maybe my day will be better? It's kind of like Christian karma, right? It's like, am I kind of paying it forward? And I'm, hey, come on. And what happens is I, if I do that, and then I step in a puddle outside, I'm angry at God. I'm like, oh, come on, I went to your house. How can you treat me like this? As if somehow God's indebted. Do you see what happens? This is the problem if I initiate. I think God is inclined. He's responsible. In other words, God owes me if I initiate. Did you get that? He says, is that really what you, the way? Look, if you see religion that way, if religion is only politics, then I, I totally don't blame you. If you realize that the whole idea of Christianity is very different from all of that, because the difference is that according to Scripture... God's chasing after you. He wants you to respond. God says, I've given you my word. If you're willing to read it, I want to reveal myself. You're responding to that desire to be more intimate with me. Prayer is, I'm initiating. God's speaking. I'm initiating the conversation. I'd like you to speak with me too. It's like, then I want to actually do something amazing. I want to develop gifts in you and use you all to bless each other. And you can't do that alone in your house. 
You've got to be together for that. You go, are you really so daft? Does it think you started by responding to God, but now you're inclined to make God do stuff? And then he says, and he who supplies the Spirit and works miracles, now we're talking the ministry. Did, did any of this ever happen by you initiating and God responding? There's the problem. And we can do that today, beloved. We can do that today by, by, by whatever way we think that we've earned God's favor. How do you earn a gift? And then what Paul does now from this verse, from these verses now, in, in essence, if you'll think about it, 13 verses basically are quoted within 10 verses of Galatians from the Old Testament. 13 different verses. Because one particular verse you can actually pull up at least five different times in the book of Genesis alone. And the whole point of it is this. Paul's saying you need to realize this is not New Testament theology. It isn't like the Old Testament was, well, we do stuff and God's this. Let me ask you, when God gave the Ten Commandments, did he give it before or after he removed them from Egypt? So why do we think that deliverance must come first by doing the law? If God was that way, if God set it up that way, then wouldn't he have said, all right, well, if you, can, if you guys nail these, we'll get you out of here. He's like, now that I've got you out, I just don't want you going back. There's the point. Now look at the text with me. Because as we dive into this text, he starts pulling up now how this is, because since the people who have come, and apparently what happened is after Paul left Galatia, which is a region, not just a city. A group of other people came in and said, well, now that you're kind of Christian, let me tell you how real Christians act. Here are our statues. Here are our pictures. Here is the standard for dress. And this is the haircut. And this is the behavior. And this is how much time you must kneel. This is how much time you must stand. These are the feasts you must go to. These are all the requirements and all of a sudden it got so complicated, people were like, I thought this was about a relationship. And all of a sudden, they put the horse behind the cart again. Just like in the book of Ruth, where the mother-in-law says, you know, to a woman who was already adored by Boaz, when she was filthy, a foreigner, had worked all day, and she says, clean yourself up. Put on your, dress yourself, clothe yourself nicely, anoint yourself and put yourself at his feet. All she was a quarter of the way right. All she needed to do was put herself at his feet. She comes at night. So do you think he's going to see her dress? Do you think he's going to see how clean she is? Yeah, but she has on that lovely midnight in the harvest perfume. He is, uh, he is guarding his grain. Do you know how smelly grain can be? Have you ever done something for someone and you've tried to really deck yourself out and they didn't even notice? I'm not trying to probably, you know, bring up some really sore subject. But the point wasn't that it's like, oh, they didn't notice. It was more that, well, to be honest, they didn't, they were already impressed before I did any of this. Paul's looking, he's like, you know, you will never be happy, you'll never have joy, and you'll never truly celebrate this God if what you're doing is trying to rev him up, if you're trying to initiate what God's already doing. 
Verse 6. Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is how it starts. And therefore, his premise of that then is, since the children come from this promise, we should expect the children to follow in that faith. And God, as a result of that, said then, in you all the nations shall be blessed. In verse 6, he quotes now from Genesis chapter 15. So notice, by the way, God goes, and if you will, he subterfuges Moses. Moses has never been called the father of the Jewish people. Abraham has always been called the father of the Jewish people. So he's sort of like, yes, Moses was a spokesperson, but we should go to the patriarch. We should go to the dad who started it. And here's the situation. According to the end of the book of Joshua, he came from an idol-worshipping house. A house full of idols in the area of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's, in essence, sort of the Gulf War area. And God says, go. He doesn't tell him where. He says, a land I'll show you. But he does give great promise with that. And the promise is simple. This is Genesis 12, by the way, where that starts. And he'll refer to that here in just a moment. But he says, go, leave your country and your family, leave all of your familiarities, all of your comforts that you know of, to the land I will show you when I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And in you all the families or peoples of the earth shall be blessed. This poor guy, by the way, living in an idol-worshipping house, how does he know he even has the right one? How does he explain this to a wife whose name is contentious? By the way, guys, if you marry a girl that's named contentious, you ask for it. And there's worse. Ma'aka means oppression, bondage. And he has to go to where now ultimately she'll become princess. It's amazing what an H does. And he has to tell her, hey, um, God spoke to me. Which one? I don't know. What's his name? He didn't say. And he said, Go. When? Uh, I guess now. To where? He said he'd tell me. When? He didn't say. How do you explain that? If her in-law, I'm sorry, if her parents are around, do you want to try to explain that to your in-laws? We're leaving. How's God going to provide? I think you said it. God's going to provide. How? He didn't tell me. But he will. What are you going to do when you get there? What he tells me. See, he was already demonstrating faith. The sad part about that is how some people will treat the nation Israel because of the middle promise and all this. I'll bless those who bless you. Could you imagine somebody being nice to you because somehow they think that being nice to you is going to pay off for them when you feel used? God does say this in the midst of it. The one thing that stands out to me in all of this is the line, you will be a blessing. I'm going to make you fruitful. I want you to go out. I'm going to show you some great things. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to make you a great nation. And imagine for a man who leaves at 75, that's going to be a pretty strange statement to make. But ultimately, things aren't going as planned. If they would go that way as planned, for me, I would think that that would happen that day. 25 years 
Some of you haven't lived that long. Some of you can't remember what it was like 25 years ago. Could you imagine God waiting 25 minutes? We have a hard time with 25 seconds on a microwave. You're like, well, we could watch the movie, but first let's make some popcorn. Are you kidding? I'm going to have to wait three minutes? Those of you who drive, you know what it's like when you're like, oh, I can't believe I got the red light. That's 46 seconds I'm going to have to wait here. I'm going to get older. It's amazing how little time seems like such a big deal to us now. Because of how many things are instant. You know what it's like. And can I just say waiting for something on the internet? Somehow y'all were old enough to remember when everything was giant boxes that we waited. And then we came back after lunch and maybe we got something. I remember being in a recording studio and a guy saying, check this out. And he typed something up. And not like within 45, maybe 50 seconds, a screen appeared. And he was like, well, how about that, huh? I know some of you are thinking, tell me another story, Grandpa. But to wait for 25 years? But can I just say, the unspoken hero to me, to be honest, I think is Sarah. I mean, she's going to be, by the way, highlighted a bit in the book of Hebrews, and I do really, I'm really thankful for that. But please understand, flesh this out with me for a moment. Because this isn't, this is more than just, hey, God, so we're going to have a baby. Oh, beautiful. Well, let's just sit here and wait for it to show up at the door through Amazon. You're in a culture where having children is the difference between honor and dishonor. You've probably heard it said that the first thing that a wife gets busy with is building an area in despair. And in a culture where there are, a, a wife has no children, the natural assumption is God has closed their womb. So, okay, so it's one thing, and, and, and for those of you who have been married, or prayerfully still are, you, you know, there's this time where all of a sudden it's like, and I, can I just say this, there was a time where it went just from, uh, we need to have children. And my wife was like possessed. I mean, she was like a person I'd never seen before. I'd never seen her that important. Like, nothing was that important ever in her life before. This point's like, yeah, I want to eat there. I want to do this. I pick out those clothes. Those are nice. Whatever. And all of a sudden, it was like everything in her universe was like, we need a baby. And I'm like, well, I, I mean, I don't want to be crass here. There was part of it that I was like, this, this is going to work well for me. But I, there's, there's this part I'm thinking, you know, honey, I can't promise you this. This is really not, this isn't in my hands. And there was a period of time where it was not happening. We were married seven years. And, and the, the myriad of emotions that seems like 30 years of, but really wasn't, because of the intensity of these emotions of, you know, the feeling forsaking, feeling abandoned, trying to figure out how to make this happen, feeling like a failure, wanting so desperately to have a child, you know. And my, I, you know, I'm, I was cavalier about the whole thing, trying to be, I was like, you know, well, you know, when the Lord wants it to happen, it's going to happen. And I was absolutely confident in that. It's just not necessarily the most comforting thing to say to a wife who says, we need a baby. And it, got, and it got to this point when I, I was totally like, well, you know, I was totally, Lord, whatever, it's cool, it's going to be cool, it's going to be cool. 
And I just remember, it was just like every month, it was like it, it would become evident that she wasn't pregnant. And that was like, that was like D-Day in the house. And, and, I, and, and I'm trying to handle this lightly, but I want you to realize it was a lot, a lot, a lot of tears. But it wasn't years of it. And I can't even imagine year after year after year of going, should we try again? Should we try again? I mean, when do you finally go, you know, we're kind of done with this. Well, certainly there's a time of life where you kind of hit, things happen physically. And it's kind of that the book's closed at that point. You're kind of like, we're done. Okay, we're done now. So the, the, the reason I say that is, this was not like the kind of baby that showed up through Amazon. I mean, somewhere down the line, Abraham has to look at his wife. He's like, honey, we need to try this again. She's like, honey, the plumbing ain't even there anymore. She's like, but God said he was going to. And here's the most amazing thing. He has to say that for 25 more years. I mean, that to me is amazing. Because it's like, I mean, understand as a husband, I can't even imagine because I know that even stepping into that arena is going to open up a hurricane of emotions, of pain and failure and grief and disappointment after disappointment. And to kind of go, you know, I really just think God's going to step into this. I know it seems hopeless right now, but I just, um, okay, so we said, well, we got to give this one more try. I'm 99, or I'm, you know, I'm 99, you're 89. We've got to give this one more try. And in the midst of that, you try to figure it out, and it's never going to make sense. And so you start trying to bargain with God. You try to think, somehow God needs my help. Now, you realize how dumb that is, right? But it never seems dumb at the moment. So you're like, okay, so God, well, here's the way it works. Um, I've got, you know, culturally, you could take our oldest slave, and I can, in essence, adopt him so that, I mean, we need somebody to give whatever we have that's going to be a heritage. We got I mean, the, someone's name's got to go on the will. So traditionally, if you don't have any children, it's your eldest servant, Eleazar from Damascus. And God says, no, it's going to come from your loins. Okay, well, there you go. And when he tries to throw that out at God, God says... Come here for a second. And I love moments like this. These are the kind of moments that are so profound. I think that one of the most beautiful moments of my life was with my little, with my daughter. I, I mean, you know those moments that matter. If, if I go senile, this memory will still remain. Taking her and going outside and saying, "Oh, look up. Now count the stars with me." And he looks at me and says, "Listen, Abraham, I'm like, going, stop putting it here." Stop making it here. You're trying to figure this out. I'm not telling you to figure it out. I'm telling you to trust me. You're like, but I can't figure it out, God. And he says, you could, your brain is not your God. And if I was small enough to be fully understood, would I be big enough to solve all your problems? I'm really bigger than that. Let me give you a hint of that. Come on outside with me. So, they go outside. Is it cloudy outside? Is it, is it clear outside? Come with me. Let's take a look. Come on. Come on. What, you thought you were going to sit in your seats? Come on. Let's just take a look.
Okay, see, this is what we get, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you see? Yeah. They are. Okay. This is what, this is clear evidence. This is clear evidence that they were not in London when God was doing this. Is that pretty evident? But follow me on. Because I. That, the weather's like this. You need to recognize. It isn't like Abraham's going to want to go out of his tent just as much as you didn't want to get out of the pew. He's like, now I want you to look up for a second and understand. See stars up there. You know they're there. You believe that they're there when I can't see them. That's called faith, by the way. But even though you can't see the stars, you end of that either. And you see, this is your world was, and here's what God does. He's like, your world is so small right now because it's become that right That right there is, is if, if you telescope from one end of the universe, God goes, that's this, according to Isaiah. He goes, I marked the whole universe with this. God was, but that. Big and mighty you for this moment, Abraham. My, and you're filling God in on details, right? It's a some memo. I'm, I don't have the finances. I don't have the materials. I don't have the plumbing. I don't have the whatever. Maybe. You guys like, stop. You don't tell me how this is going to work. Perhaps you're unaware of that system that you are trying to inform me of. I all night. I caught nothing. I'm the expert. I mean, God says, and out there he's like, look it, just look to see how big this is. Now look it. I'm not asking for you to wrap your head around this. I'm asking for you to wrap your heart around it and trust that I'm bigger. I'm bigger than all of your things you're going to lay out before me. I'm bigger than that. And that. The rest of the message isn't out here. Even now, I like here to keep it warm up there. <laughs> it is. Now you can probably hear it. That probably didn't get recorded. You know. Hello, my name is Pastor Anthony Holiday. Welcome to the 4D Experience. Sorry, I'm just gonna have to put that in there. Was it still? Did okay. Okay, now now listen. God says, What did it take for me to make Abraham right? Understand righteousness. Zadik. Zadika. The kasanin. Means to be right. It's to be clear. It's, it's a building term where you're right where you're supposed to be. You should be really thankful that those pillars are where they're supposed to be or the roof would be a little bit closer to your head. A lot closer. Please hear me, beloved. 
So let me ask you, if, if we're going to actually say Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, if he really is Father Abraham, what example did our dad set? And the example he set was this. He didn't figure it out. He just trusted. Do you realize why the church fights so much? Is because they're trying to figure out things that they should just trust. They're like, but, but what about this thing? And what about God being sovereign? And how do you reconcile that with man having a choice? I'm like, I, I just believe it. And they're like, oh, that, that doesn't work. According to who? God? And you have a kid who's like, look at How could, Mr. Smartpants, how could God be down here praying and up there hearing the prayer? I'm like, he's God. He could be a billion chickens running around if he wants to, but he's not. He's, he could be whatever he wants. He chose to be specific things so we could get some of that, so we can understand. By the way, the things he did choose to represent himself as were things relational. You are the fact that everything he presents himself as is completely the most intimate relationships on earth. Be aware of that. God even knew that he would be addressing England. How do I know that? Because he uses one of those relationships as the relationship between a person and their pet. Well. Show you know. That's what a shepherd's like. He calls it all of his sheep by name. Now, please understand. One of the first things I was told by someone, I gave someone a hug our first Sunday morning service, and someone said, listen, dear, we don't show any affection for each other, only for our animals. So I went, roof, and gave him a big hug. All right, now, I better pick this up. So he goes, listen. Where, where are you at with all of this? Are you in a place where you're trying to make God the responder? Are you responding to a God who says, follow me. Just come follow me. Just come follow me. Where? Stop wrapping your head around it. Just come follow me. And here's the most amazing thing. God's commands are actually very simple. We complicate them because we say, I don't have all the information. God's like, you know why you don't have all the information? Because the information I give you is the part that I'm holding you responsible to obey. Follow me. Where? Well, you'll know if you do, huh? Just follow me. How do I explain that to people I love? Trust me. So he says this. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And therefore, I want you to recognize, if you're going to call yourself a child of Abraham, we better follow God the same way. Scripture, seeing that God would actually justify the Gentiles by doing so, made this statement in Genesis 12, 3, 18, 18, 22, 18, and then to his son Isaac in 26, 4, and then to his grandson Jacob in 28, 14. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. That's what he says. In you, all of the nations, ethnos, like we get ethnicity or ethnic, all of the people of the world. Now, this is not a delusion of grandeur. It's like there is not going to be a race on earth that's not going to be blessed by you. Would you like a promise like that? I would love a promise like that. So hear me out. The first time when God said go, he said, the whole world's going to be blessed by you. That was in that Genesis 12 text, by the way. And then after that, after the call to move, well, then it says, listen, I'm going to give you this promise. Come follow me. And then there was a whisper of wrath. When God says, hey, listen, 
Should I tell him what's going to happen since all the world's going to be blessed through him? By the way, that's in Genesis 18. And the whole point of that, of course, was that he was about to perform wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. But it doesn't stop there. Listen, just follow me. There's a whisper of wrath. So it's the mission to move, the whisper of wrath, and then listen, Genesis 22, where God introduces the words love, worship, obey. They're all there. When Abraham offers his only son. And it's there when he offers his only son. He finds redemption. So listen, the mission to move, the whisper of wrath, but the response of redemption. That's what God said. If you follow me, I'm going to bless the whole world. And this is how I'm going to bless them. You follow me, and I'll use you to rescue people from wrath. How? Through my redemption. That's how. That's the same thing that happens. So listen, as we bring this around. He says this then. So then those who are of faith are blessed with with believing Abraham. Here's the problem. If you're trying to make God the responder, you better be perfect. Because the person who initiates has to be perfect. The good news is God's more than willing. So in Deuteronomy, God says, when you get into the promised land, you're going to stand on two hills. Ebol and Gerizim. And you're going to pronounce the whole law. You're going to have the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Curse. And I know when those two mountains come, Gerizim, by the way, of blessing, Ebol of curse, what will happen is, is that everyone else is going to stand in the valley in between. And what will happen is they'll kind of go and listen, here's the deal. Here's the law. Here's the law. If you do every bit of it, I'm going to bless you in every way. I'll bless you in the field. I'll bless you in the city. I'll bless you in the valley. I'll bless your kneading bowls. I'll bless your work. I'll bless everything you said to you. It's just going to be bless, 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 bless. As long as you just perfectly do it. If you don't perfectly do it, well, then you'll be cursed in all of those things. In your kneading bowl, in your fields, and as you sit down and you lie on and you get up and you go and you come in. It's just going to be bad. The most amazing thing was it wasn't just a place where it said do everything or don't do you know do do everything do one thing wrong and you're, you because God also says there's an altar where you can get this right. You know what the interesting thing is where God put that altar. That altar could not have been shaped by human hands. He tells us it needs to be done. It needs to be something I do, not you. You don't make it pretty. It's going to be ugly. It's just going to be crude. And you know where it was? Not neither hill on the top was it. It was at the bottom of the hill of the curse. That's where it was. You know why? Because every person can go there. God had told us from the very beginning, listen, I will meet you right at that failure. James tells us, hey, listen, you want to try to do it by the law? That's perfect, except this. You better be perfect. You throw a rock through a window. How much of the window do you have to replace? Well, I only broke a corner of it. Yeah, but the whole glass needs to be replaced. How many crimes do you have to do to be a criminal? Now, we're aware of the fact, as wonky as our system is here, and in America, by the way, it's certainly no better, that we kind of feel like people can get away with murder, and we've kind of seen that. But in a perfect world where everything was just, if you broke one law, you would be a criminal. And here's the problem. When Jesus comes and shows things, he says, listen, man looks at the outer appearance, I look at the heart. So maybe you didn't murder anyone, but I look at your heart, and your heart's murdered people, you're a murderer. Okay, maybe you haven't committed adultery, but I look at your heart and you've lusted. Oh, that looks like adultery to me because I'm looking at the inside. You really still think that you're perfectly hunky-dory? 
And he goes, so here's the problem. Do you really want to try to do it by thinking you can earn this? But I've prayed. Has your prayers been perfect? But I've done good deeds. Have they always been with the perfect motives and with a perfect end? I've gone to church perfectly. When you went to go worship God, it was never about the perfection of the worshiper. It was always about the perfection of the sacrifice. That was the thing that needed to be without blemish. God never said that the worshiper couldn't be without, couldn't be without blemish. But the sacrifice needed to be. And the good thing is, you may not be able to pick yourself perfect, but you could pick the perfect sacrifice. And my God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was tempted in every way yet without sin. He's the perfect sacrifice. How do I know it was perfect? He went down to the grave and came up alive again. I think that that's pretty strong proof. And this is what we end with this concept. Listen to this. So on one side, if you're going to do it, you better do it perfectly. On the other side, verse 11, it says that the just shall live by faith. I'd like you to consider the fact. That statement, by the way, for what it's worth, is from Habakkuk 2.4. is mentioned three times in Scripture in the New Testament. And here's the statement. Listen. The just shall live by by faith. Did you get that? Interesting, because the first time it's mentioned, it's in Romans 1.17. And you know what God's defining? The just. When it tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed, as it's been said, that the just shall live by faith. You know what it's like to be just? Through faith in Jesus Christ. There's the just. Galatians, where it's about walking in the Spirit, that's the second time, as we see it right here, shall live. God's not going to let any part of it get undefined. And then the last one, right before Hebrews 11. What do we call Hebrews 11? Well, it's called the Hall of Faith. Listen, the just shall live by faith. He laid it out for us that perfect, so that we could not make up any of it. Because on the other side of it, a person who doesn't do it is cursed. And therefore, that is why Deuteronomy 21:23 says, Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. The man who does them shall live by him, as it's quoted in verse 12, comes from Leviticus 18:5. And cursed is everyone who does not continue in all that is written in the laws from Deuteronomy 27:26. God says, well, if that's the case, then the, the fee is cursed, to be cursed. And there's a problem. You know what's interesting? Listen to this last quick thing here, and we're going to be ready to pray. During the time, by the way, of the Seven-Day War, there was an Israeli scholar called Yigal Yadin. And Yigal Yadin, by the way, kind of had an inside track on some of the uh, scrolls that seemed to be missing. One of them was a temple scroll, by the way. He was a known archaeologist. He was also a politician, by the way. And during that Six-Day War, he ordered a special unit to search out all of the antique dealers from Jerusalem all the way through to the five, six miles out to Bethlehem, through Bejola and so forth. All the way down then through south to Hebron. And he said if there is anyone that has any scrolls, ancient scrolls that they're to cough them up. And they found a dealer named Kando. Kando had a scroll that was buried in his floor. It was nine meters long. When he pulled it up and he, and he read it, it was commentary on Deuteronomy 21. Which is where it says, Cursed is everyone ultimately who hangs on the tree. Interesting, hakila is the idea of the commentary, what's considered acceptable commentary on the law. 
So that the practice would be that if someone were to do something that deserves hell, they were not to be stoned, but hung on a tree. So much so, by the way, that we'll actually find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls in two different places. We'll also find it quoted twice in one manner or another by Josephus in Antiquities, by the way, and in the uh, wars, his commentary on the wars. And, and, and if that means nothing to you, that's fine. Here's the point. The Jewish people believed that if a person hung on a tree, they were going to go to hell. That was the point. That's the idea of being cursed. And so if a person did something stupid, they may have gotten the death penalty because they did something intentionally wrong. But if they did something that was of a spiritual nature, of a blasphemous nature, the only proper punishment, in their opinion, was to hang them on a tree, was the idea. Interesting, because the reason that this is all being brought up was that, of course, was written a thousand years before crucifixion was invented. And today we make it look really pretty. I mean, you know, we could thank Madonna and the other sort of jewelry makers from her time on, where everything's kind of polished and pretty. But in those days, it was just a chunk of tree that you didn't... You were going to kill people on it. Why would you make it pretty? And by the way, you're probably aware of the fact there weren't a lot of trees, so the Romans recycled. It's weird to think this, but it's fairly likely that Jesus wouldn't have been the first guy, nor the last, to hang on that same cross. It was crude and it was nasty because you killed people and you didn't make it pretty. But you also knew that you didn't take anything cursed and let it hang during a Sabbath. This is why, by the way, they broke the legs of the other two people but took all three of them down before the Sabbath because they were considered cursed and you were not going to publicize that type of thing during a Sabbath. Jesus willingly waited and waited until, by the way, the whole world spoke a common language, Roman paved the world so we could get the gospel out to everyone. Babylon had given us a world vision. And then he waited till crucifixion was invented. So that all of the prophecies, including those written a thousand years before in Genesis 22 as well, would come to pass. 400 to 600 years before crucifixion was invented, when they, we read things like, my arms are out, my bones are out of joint, I can count my bones, my tongue clings to my roof of my mouth because it's dry like a pot shirt, they gamble for my clothing. I mean, things that you just can't fabricate. Could you imagine Jesus hanging on the cross and going, hey, hold on, hold on, we've got a couple more uh, prophecies. You guys, you want to gamble for my clothing? I mean, think this through. I just want to make sure this is all coming to pass. The religious leaders wag their heads and say, oh, you saved others, save yourself, which God prophesied, by the way, in Genesis 22. You'd have thought they would have shut up just to try to stop the prophecy. They played in every bit of it, including offering Judas 30 pieces of silver. Okay, look at it. If I were trying not to make this Jesus make him look like the Messiah, I would have given him 31. Would have blown the whole thing. And then he throws them in, and just like Zechariah promises, they build up and they, they buy a potter's field with it. Because they get all fulfilled. And here's the point. It boils down to this. From the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, God is hot on you and He wants you. He's paid your price. He's paid the bill of your guilt. Why do you want to pay what God already has? And by trust, you don't have to figure out everything. Can you figure out this much? If he wants to dump love all over your life and pay your bill, why would you say no? But if you have said yes to Jesus, why are you trying to make it seem like you're the one who's trying to keep this relationship going? 
Wouldn't it just be great if we just said, you know what, Lord, I'm going to read your word for the right reason now, because I just want to know you better, because I know that's why you wrote it. I'm going to pray not because this is like, dear Santa, I mean God, but because I know that you have a will and I want to get in tune with that. I want to get in church not because I'm going to be a consumer and just get stuff, but rather if you want to use me because someone else needs a tangible demonstration of who you are today, your love, your care, your concern, whatever it is, I just want you to know I'm available for your deployment. You realize church becomes something interactive for every one of us, not just to step outside for a moment to stare at the fog. So as we go to prayer, here's my question. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? I didn't notice. I didn't ask. Have you gone to church? That would be stupid. You're here. Have you accepted this gift that God has offered? He's dropped the knee and he says, will you be mine? It's your choice to make. Don't blame God. He's given you the offer. But if you have said yes, let's get back to the way it should be. And I believe tonight God's telling you, as he's telling me, follow me. Stop trying to figure me out and just trust me. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful word. I want to thank you for the way, Lord, that you've come before us tonight. And you knew who would be in here. You knew who would hear this. And with all of these words, Lord, chances are we couldn't process it all. But you're by your Holy Spirit can really make us understand the part we need to. So, Lord, of all the things that were said, the part that you intended specifically for us, first and foremost, etch that into our hearts tonight. And help us to get it for real. So, Lord, tonight, right now, first, for anyone here who calls himself a believer in you, who says they've accepted that gift, Lord, I ask your forgiveness for where we have made it about anything but Jesus. We could even just make it about where we come from, our country, or ethnicity, or our whatever, and we're like, yeah, but I'm a this Christian. Lord, just make us a Christian Christian. Where it's all about you, Jesus. And teach us, Lord, how to hear you, to hunger for you, to crave your word to know you better, so that we don't make up something lamer than the perfect, amazing God that you are. But also that church would be a place, Lord, where we become, where we hear your word, but also where we come and become available for you to use us in very tangible ways in the lives of others. For needs that will need to be met. For love that needs to be issued. For kindness that needs to be displayed. For the older people to help bring that maturity to the younger. For the younger to constantly challenge the older about the passion that should never wane in our hearts. Oh, the way that that should be symbiotic here. And right now, within this room, as we close this up, I want you walking out of here confident that you've said yes to Jesus. Now, I can't make you say yes. That would be dumb. That wouldn't be a choice anymore. And I know that probably right now in your heart and in your head you're thinking, but look at all the things that are going to be in the balance now. What about this part of my life? Or what about this part of my life? Or what about this? Compare all of that to a moment to a person who knows you perfectly and loves you and really has proven it. If he really has chased this heart after you, can he put all of that in order? Can he change appetites that you even want changed? 
can he make sense of the things that right now are just crazy and put peace through faith? Is there anything really that you would say, I just can't see letting go of this and it's more important? Well, right now in this room, if you want to say yes to Jesus, I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm just going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen because I want you to see what it is you would be responding to. And at the end of it, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. You know what? That's going to be, let that prayer be mine. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I know I'm not perfect. And therefore, I know I'm not right. And I can try to pay that bill myself. But that's a curse. But you didn't want that. You love me. And you proved it by letting your son take the curse upon himself on that cross. And there at the cross, he's already paid for all of my guilt and shame, all of my failures. But that's only half the story. Three days later, just like Scripture promised, he rose again from the dead. And to tell me in that, that there is a whole new life that you're offering me, but I'll never have it until I let you let this one die. And there are parts of it I like, but I, in faith, right now, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes to Jesus, to his gift for me, his payment. If you really are the pursuer and all you're asking for me to do is respond, then I want to respond and I want to respond right. And if you really want to just dump love on me, why would I say no to that? So I'm saying yes. I'm confessing Jesus as my payment at the cross, as my Savior. But as he's resurrected now, I confess him as the reinventor of my life. Give me a life so amazing with you that I'll look back at the life I have just 10 minutes ago and say, why would I have ever wanted that? So I say yes, confessing Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, believing he died and rose again for me, for me, specifically for me. I say yes. So Father, here I am, openly saying yes, I'll take that gift in Jesus' name. And if that's you tonight, all I ask you to do is to say, Amen. Lord, I just pray right now, be anyone who has said yes, that you would cement that conviction in their heart. Fill them with a joy that only comes at your presence. And start us on that beautiful journey to follow you. Lord, for every one of us now, broaden our universe again. And remind us, you're bigger, you're bigger, you're bigger, you're bigger, and we just want to follow you. You're bigger than we'll ever grasp on this side. Thank you for that, by the way. In Jesus' name. Amen.